You're listening to Matt Walsh On Demand. Welcome, welcome to Matt Walsh On Demand. Uh, I hope you had a, a great, well, not just this week, but last week. I was on a wonderful vacation in Southern California last week, so I missed you then. Um, we, it, it, was, it was really a lot of fun. We spent most of our time in a place called La Jolla, which is right outside. About, it's, it's north of San Diego. It's in San Diego, but it's north of downtown. And I found out that it's pronounced La Jolla, but it's actually spelled uh, La Jala. And so for the first two or three days of our vacation, we were going around, my wife and I, and calling it La Jala until someone finally informed us that it's La Jolla. Because, you know, it's in, in, it's, it's in Spanish, the J is silent, and then the two L's is pronounced with a Y sound. But how are we supposed to know this? Because this is America, damn it. Um, and it's really beautiful. I mean, the coastline is breathtaking. All of the residents there wear very trendy hats. And sunscreen costs approximately $3,000 an ounce. So it's a lot of fun. We had a great time. And we were especially enthralled by the sea lions and the seals, which are really all over the place. These are incredible creatures who, um, you know, they, they climb up on the rock faces and on the cliffs. And they're hanging out most of the day and sleeping. And so it's, it's pretty cool. You know, I'd never seen a, a seal or a sea lion in the wild before. And I'd never noticed that uh, these animals, who are very beautiful smell like a pile of tuna sandwiches left in a hot port john for three days. That's what they smell like, which I, I didn't realize that. But probably my favorite thing about the vacation, other than, other than, uh, other than nature and the smelly seals and the, and the trendy hats, was the state of utter obliviousness that I enjoyed. Okay, I'm usually wrapped up in all of the frustrating and discouraging news of the day, but for this fleeting period of time, I ignored all current events, um, and it was it was uh, a much-needed break. But now I'm back, unfortunately, and I've had to be bluntly reacquainted with the happenings of our dying culture because the Supreme Court gay marriage decision, of course, happened the day that I, that I got back. Um, but there was something else that occurred last week that might seem like old news now, and I guess it is, but I just, I have to say something about it, okay? I have to, and I don't care if you've heard a million takes on this already. Here's another one, all right? The Confederate flag. A few things to say on this point, because even by the standards of the knee-jerk mob, this has been a really stunning display, and it all brings to mind a few points which, uh, which I will provide in list format, okay? Now, here's the, the first point. It's sort of point 1A, and then we'll get to point 1. I think um, you could definitely make a good argument for taking the Confederate flag down from uh, public property, like state houses and that sort of thing. I think that comes down to uh, you know, what the people in that, in that state happen to want. If the people largely feel like it represents their culture and it represents uh, unity in that culture, then well, they should have it up. But if there's a lo- if there is a, a popular feeling in 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 those states that it's a, a symbol of division or it divides them, well, then they should take it down. Um, so that, that that's really up to them. But there's a very good argument to be made for taking it down because you could say, well, look, and even and even people who support. Um, or who think that uh, uh, the Confederates should have been allowed to secede, even, even those people would say, well, the Confederacy, the whole point is that the Confederacy, at that moment when they seceded, they became a different country. And so when the North came and fought them, they were invading another country. That's a point that 
people who uh, believe in the right to secession will make. So even from that perspective, well, this is a flag of another country. Um, now that doesn't mean, you know what I'm saying is, uh, I don't think it should be, uh, I don't think people should be attacked for flying on private property. Um, I don't, and we're going to get to all this, but I don't think that anyone has the right to tell someone else who has that flag what it means to them. I don't think anyone has that right. If somebody has the flag or flies it or wears it or whatever, and they're saying it represents heritage, it represents freedom, secession, uh, op- uh, opposition to tyranny, if they're saying that that's what it means to them, and you cannot tell them that it means something different. However, when you're talking about public property, it's a little bit different. But, and this is an important but, you could have all along, like, I don't know how long the, the Confederate flag has been hanging, for instance, um, in South Carolina, but it's been decades, right? Um, and for decades now, I'm sure there have been people making arguments against it saying, hey, we should probably take it down. And I'm sure some of those people are people who aren't uh, necessarily opposed to the flag itself. They just don't think it should be on public property. They don't think it should be at a state house. So you could have made that argument for decades. And if you've been making that argument prior to these last couple of weeks, um, then, then fine. But even if you think, even if you've been saying for 20 years that the Confederate flag should be taken down in South Carolina, I would argue that, and as I said, I can be sympathetic to that view, but I would argue that now, right now, is the worst time to take it down. So even if you've thought for a long time that it should be removed, your position right now should be, okay, let's eventually remove it, but let's wait. Okay, if we, were, we could have removed it four weeks ago or five weeks ago or 10 years ago, that would have been fine. But right now, let's not remove it. And I'll tell you why. Because if you remove it now, the only reason you're removing it, and there could have been all these other good reasons, but the only reason you're removing it now is simply in response to what Dylan Roof did. So when you remove it now, you're participating, even if, you know, even if you have other reasons aside from Dylan Roof, you're participating in the mass hysteria, you're sending the wrong message, you're emboldening Dylan Roof, you're giving him power that he shouldn't have. So arguments can be made for it, but they should not be arguments in response to, the, what, this, to what this terrible person did. Now that leads us to point one. Number one, and this is really important, your opinion of the Confederate flag, whatever it is, should not have changed in the last few weeks. This should be really obvious. The exploits of one terrible person should not have swayed you towards one side or the other of this debate. If you opposed the flag before, you still should. If you didn't, you still shouldn't. If you didn't care one way or another, well, then there's no reason for you to suddenly form a hasty opinion on the subject. So whatever it is, if you oppose the flag, fine, you still should. If you, if, 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 if you support it, you still should. If you didn't care, you still shouldn't care. Whatever the case, Dylan Roof in no way proved a point on either side of the discussion. He didn't enlighten the matter. He didn't lend it any clarity. If you think the flag is a symbol of heritage or states' rights or history or death or racism or treason or anything else... There's no reason to have altered that belief in the last couple of weeks. No matter your opinion of it, you can't point to that bloodthirsty loser and say, see, I was right all along. He proved my point. He didn't prove any point. Number two, if you were ignorant of Civil War history before the Charleston attack, you are not suddenly an expert today. So here's a fun riddle. 
Out of all the people on social media making proclamations about the true meaning of the Confederate flag, how many of them could, you know, name uh, three Civil War generals or a few Civil War battlefields? How many of these sudden historians think that Bull Run is a Six Flags ride or that, or that Pickett's Charge is, a, is a, you know, the name of a new indie band or something? How many of them know what happened during Sherman's March? Uh, how many could speak intelligently about the events leading up to the war? How many nor- know about, you know, the nullification crisis or, or um, the debate over uh, uh, protective tariffs? You know, the point is, of all the people forming opinions about this period in history, how many actually know something about it? And I'm not being, you know, some kind of elitist or snob or saying, well, you have to have a degree in, in a history at a major university to have an opinion. I don't, but I've read some books. So I do think you need to have a basic um, foundation of knowledge in order to form an opinion about something. And that's not a radical position. It's not an elitist position. It's like if, 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 um, if you're telling me your opinion about or giving me some analysis of World War II but you can't name the Allied and Axis powers, well, then why would I listen to your opinion? You don't know that they're just the elementary information about this period of history you don't know. So how could, how could your analysis mean anything? It's not grounded in knowledge. Knowledge is important. You know, as we were reminded by, wasn't it G.I. Joe's? Knowledge is power. And knowledge gives you the power to have a relevant opinion an opinion that people should listen to. But if you don't have the knowledge about a subject, then nobody should listen to your opinion. Because why should they? What weight does your opinion carry if it isn't grounded in information? So if you don't have a solid base of knowledge surrounding this pivotal moment in history, you really have no business participating in a conversation about the symbolism associated with it. The worst thing about our country is not that we are hostile to our own history, although we are. But it's also that in many cases, our hostility is rooted in obliviousness. And worse than that, we don't possess the integrity or humility to recognize our ignorance and and then pipe down and let the informed people have a reasonable discussion. Number three, the people who fought and died in the Civil War um, did not fight and die over slavery. And I mean that that's the case on either side. Many factors uh, precipitated the bloodiest war in American history. Certainly slavery played a part. But it was never merely a war over slavery. Um, It was a war over cultural differences, state sovereignty, taxes, tariffs, ports, resources. Like all wars, it was fought for many reasons. And money and resources had a lot to do with it. Also, culture had a lot to do with it. And any attempt to boil it down to one word or one sentence is engaging in, an, in, a, in a profound oversimplification, um, which some might even describe as lying. So wherever slavery falls on the spectrum of causes, we certainly cannot ignore the fact that southern states were made to carry an unfair tax burden, especially after the passage of a protectionist tariff in 1861. And southern states felt, and rightly so, that they were bearing the brunt of these taxes, and yet most of the money was going to support manufacturing in the North- Northeast. So by the time uh, the war broke out, the North and the South had already become like two separate countries. And there was this agrarian society of the South, which valued states' rights and felt that it was being unfairly treated by the North, and that the North controlled most of the political process. 
And then there was the urbanized culture of the North, which cared more about expanding the power of the federal government and kind of looked down on the people of the South. Now, there's no question that many of the elites, the leaders in the South, political leaders, were interested in preserving slavery. Their economy depended on it. Moreover, they feared uh, that a sudden and abrupt emancipation would cause chaos in, 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 uh, in their part of the country. They knew about the Haitian slave rebellions and all the bloodshed there. There was a feeling among, among many of these people that slavery would, would be phased out over time, which it would have been w- without any war anyway, um, like it was in Europe. And there was no war fought over slavery in Europe, but it ended anyway. But, but some of these people felt that suddenly ending it would be disastrous for everyone involved. Of course, the morally correct thing when faced with an evil like this is to end it right away, obviously. But I'm just explaining the feelings of some of these people. But the point is that the Confederate soldiers and other leaders, particularly military leaders, were not fighting for slavery. They didn't care about it. Why would they? The vast majority of them, over 90%, did not own slaves. They were poor. They were poor laborers themselves. Why would they be fighting to protect an institution that they didn't immediately benefit from? You know, they're not going as these poor farmers to fight to protect, you know, uh, uh, plantation owner Jim's slaves down the street. They're, They're not doing that. They were fighting in their minds for a way of life and for freedom, for secession. Now let's take a look at the North. Do we actually think that Northern Union soldiers were, in their minds, going to war to free the slaves? The answer to that question is no. And in fact, if you read even, and this is an interesting thing to do, but you read the letters home from the war from people on the Union side, they're not writing home to uh, their missus or to their mama talking about, hey, we're going to war to free the slaves. They're talking about preserving the Union. That's what they thought they were fighting for. If they thought this was all about freeing the slaves, there would have been a rebellion in the Union ranks. And we'd be living in a very different country because the Union would have lost. Most of these people would not have fought to free the slaves. Do you know why? Because people in the the North were racist. This is at a period of time where everyone was racist. And I don't just mean in America. I mean in the entire world. And it's still like this in in many parts of the world. But this was a tribalistic period in our history. And when I say period in our history, I mean for the entirety of human history up until very recently. It's just you had your people and you thought the people who were different from you were, were less, you know, were, um, were inferior. You were suspicious of them. And this, again, was the case across the world, everywhere this was the case. And in many places in the world, it is still the case where racism, suspicion of other races and ethnicities, is a driving force in our culture. It's not the case anymore here, thank God, but it is the case in many other parts of the world. That doesn't excuse it. I'm just telling you the facts of the matter. And I'm just telling you that the people in the Union were racist. Now, that doesn't mean they all supported slavery, but it does mean that they couldn't have been so opposed to it that they would fight a war over it when they thought that these people, these black Americans, were inferior anyway. So they could have thought, well, they're inferior, but they shouldn't be enslaved. But it's sort of like, okay, can you imagine somebody in America starting a war over abortion when they think that babies are not people anyway? Now, it's possible, I guess, that somebody could be opposed to abortion, but still think that babies aren't really people. It's possible to, you know, be intellectually opposed to it, I suppose, even if you, even if you have a dehumanized perspective 
of babies. But would you be militantly opposed to it? No, the militant opposition to abortion would have to come from a deep feeling that these are people just like us and deserve all of the rights that we have, which, by the way, they are, they do. There were some in the North that had that opinion. Uh, guys like John Brown, the, the, the violent abolitionists. Okay, these are people who really felt black Americans are people and they deserve all the same rights and they had a militant perspective on it. But most people in the Union didn't, which is why uh, racism and segregation was very prevalent in the North. There were, there, were, there were northern states that barred freed slaves from coming, and even the states that accepted them. In many of these places, they were disenfranchised. Uh, they didn't have all the same rights, and many local ordinances were passed in northern towns, you know, either, either keeping blacks out or if they came, segregating them and putting them so in a position where they were living you know, in ghettos in the cities. The north got to a point where it didn't depend on slavery the same way that the South did. The South did because it was an agrarian society. The North, the North was more manufacturing-based. But the North has slavery, on its, uh, slavery blood on its hands all the same, not just because of the racism that was prevalent there, um, but also because th the slave traders, okay, the people, these were the worst kinds of people, the people who went down to Africa and either abducted blacks or, or, or in most cases, you know, the, the blacks were sold to them by other blacks there in, the, in Africa. Um, but the people that went and did that, these were northerners. The slave traders were northerners. So what the northerners did is that they went and they got the slaves and sold them to the south and then turned around and said they're against slavery. So that's a lot of what was happening. And you have to remember that there was a competition here, a fracturing between the north and the south. The North was intimidated by the South's agricultural production, um, by its ability to export cotton to Europe. And the North also knew that an independent confederacy would be disastrous economically for, for, the, uh, for the United States, for the North. It would certainly, for instance, ruin uh, or, or greatly hinder the textile industry in the North in places like New England. And these were all considerations. The North knew that well, if you take away the slaves and that takes away the, the labor, a lot of the laborers in the South, and it could, it could um, interfere greatly with their ability to produce. So these were all, these were all things that were taken into consideration. Um, remember that Abraham Lincoln, and I think this is a fact that a lot of people now, now understand, or, or more than, than used to anyway. But we all learned, many of us learned in school that the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves. But in fact, the Emancipation Proclamation, when Lincoln wrote it, was specifically written to free no slaves. It only freed the slaves in rebelling states. In other words, it only freed the slaves, when it was finally written, it only freed the slaves in states that the North did not control. There were slaves in northern states at this time, yet the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation specifically protected the, the ability of northern slave owners to keep their slaves. Why is that? So why was the Emancipation Proclamation written? Well, a, a fruitless Emancipation Proclamation that actually emancipated nobody was written by Abraham Lincoln at a point in the war when he saw that politically things were getting very dangerous for him. And he knew that if the European powers would take the side of the Confederacy, um, that, that, would be, that, that might be the end of the war. The Confederates would, live, would, would win. So Abraham Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation to, as a political statement. 
to sudden to suddenly sort of reposition the war as one of emancipating the slaves. And so he knew that that would stop Europe from getting involved on the side of the Confederates. Because now, all of a sudden, in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of their own people, they're taking the side of the pro-slavery force. That's why the, the proclamation was written. And you can look at Lincoln's own words, um, like uh, his some famous quotes of his from uh, the um, Lincoln-Douglas debates, where he says very explicitly, very explicitly, that he does not believe that the white and black races are equal, and he does think that whites are superior and that, 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 their, that their position of superiority should be maintained. So this is an important point, that the people fighting the war on either side did not believe that they were fighting over slavery. Okay, number four, a point now um, about secession. I've heard it said many times that the South, uh, they were traitors, but they seceded. Do you know who else seceded? The colonists. The colonists seceded. And for them, they actually had no right at all to do it. The colonists, the property they claimed, belonged to the king. Whereas in the South, this land did not belong to the federal government, and it never was supposed to. It's, you are not under ownership of the federal government. Virginia, South Carolina, these states were not owned by the federal government. This is, a, this is the whole point. This is why the colonists seceded. They didn't want to be owned by a central power anymore. But at the time when they did secede, they were owned, and their colonies were owned. They were trying to establish a union of free states, but they didn't have one at the time. The British Empire was not a union of free states. So the colonists, who were slave owners and racist themselves, many of them, wanted to start a new, a, a new country, a slave-owning country, I should tell you. And they made it very clear in their laws that blacks would not be equal in this, in this new country. Uh, they would be slaves. They did exactly what the South did. And if they'd lost... They would have been hung as traitors, and we would all be learning in school about the great treasonous cowards known as Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Ben Franklin, because the victor writes the history, right? So it shocks me. Um, well, maybe not shock, but it disappoints me that so many people could be so shallow in their thinking. If the South committed treason, then so did the colonists. So did Ben Franklin, all the founding fathers. And again, these were also slave owners. In fact, going back to the South, they had much less reason to be called traitors. What I'm saying is the new country, what separated it from the old, is that it was supposed to be a free and voluntary union between states. Whatever the reason, it doesn't really matter. Some of these states that entered the union voluntary, voluntarily said, okay, we want to take our land and our lives and we want to leave. They, they weren't trying to overthrow the government or anything like that. They just wanted to leave. Now, if they don't have that right, then what makes America any different from a kingdom? What makes it any different? And if they do have that right, but the federal government invaded their town anyway, or invaded their, their towns, I should say, plural, many towns. What makes um, the government any better than the British monarchy circa the 1770s? Look, a, a union is entered into by choice. If the only way to preserve it is to remove the choice, then it's no longer a union. It's like getting your wife to not leave you by locking her in the closet. Are you preserving the marriage? Or are you turning your marriage into a slavery? And let me ask you this. If tomorrow, Texas decided it wanted to secede, would you support Obama sending the Marines into Austin to burn it to the ground and kill half the residents? Would you support that? Because that's what Lincoln did to the South. 
Number five. This seems irrelevant to the flag issue, but it isn't. Um, when the South decided to secede, not only did Lincoln try to bring them back by force, but he suspended habeas corpus. He shut down hundreds of newspapers. He ended free speech. He arrested newspaper editors who spoke against him. Um, he literally forced Maryland not to secede at gunpoint. He intimidated and arrested legislators. Um, he even wrote an arrest warrant for a Supreme Court justice who spoke out against him. So tell me, was that America? Was that freedom? To preserve the union, we gave up everything, all freedom. We gave, it, we gave up everything that America stands for, everything. And you're telling me this was right? You're telling me that there are times when you preserve freedom by removing all of them? When you preserve a democracy by becoming a tyrant, you're telling me that's the way it should go? That's what the colonists fought for? That's the kind of country they wanted? You think our founding fathers would have supported that? Number six, here we get to the flag. Um, and I, I haven't even talked yet about what, what happened after the war uh, when the South was turned into a military district. Thousands of Southerners were disenfranchised, had their liberties removed or suspended. Uh, the South was occupied like, like, you know, like, like we, what we've done with countries in the Middle East in modern times. So the flag, for many millions of Southerners, um, you see how it came to stand for opposition to tyranny, for, for pre preservation of a way of life, not of slavery, but a way of life, a culture, opposition to an oppressive federal government. For many Southerners, the Confederate flag came to represent what the American flag represented before the Civil War, what it represented for the original secessionists, the original rebels, the colonists. That's what it meant to them. That's what it means to millions of them. And meanwhile, yes, it was co-opted by the KKK and some white supremacist groups, etc. Um, this is a symbol we see that, that, like many symbols, means many things to many people. People infuse their own meaning into it. The KKK tried to infuse a meaning into it, but this is not the meaning that millions of Southerners saw or see in it. So you don't agree. You see something else, and that's fine. It's a symbol. Symbols, symbols are like that. That's how symbols are. But there is no debating or arguing the point that for 150 years, millions of non-racist Southerners have seen it as a symbol opposing tyranny and preserving a culture. Not a slave culture, but a Southern culture. Again, you don't have to agree. But you can't sit there and say, oh, no, it, it doesn't mean that to them. Or it shouldn't mean that. You can't say that. It makes no sense. So number seven. Some have compared the Confederate flag to the Nazi swastika symbol. Um, and their reasons for doing this are ridiculous, but actually, despite themselves, they're right. It is sort of like the swastika, and I'll explain, okay? The swastika, a um, cross-like shape with ends bent, um, the swastika is actually an ancient symbol. goes back thousands of years. You can find it in nearly every ancient culture. It's something that is uh, especially prominent. It's been like this for a long time, and, and it is now. Especially prominent in Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, and for the Hindus, they've used it for thousands of years to symbolize good fortune. The Hindus traditionally put swastikas on their doors, for instance, on feast days like Diwali. And I, I know about this because I've read about it, but also because growing up, I had several Indian friends and I also had several Jewish friends. So I remember one day, I was probably in seventh grade, maybe eighth. And my Jewish friend, Aaron, and I, we were, we were going to hang out at my Indian friend, Amar's house. And we went up to his door, and there hanging on the front door was a swastika, okay? 
And we had never heard about the history of the swastika before, so you can imagine how we reacted. Aaron was pretty upset. He's Jewish. Um, I, I was upset too, even though I'm not Jewish, because obviously Nazism is a great evil that everyone despises, no matter their ethnicity or religion. The swastika to us is a symbol of Nazism, of evil, of, of hate, of death. So Amar comes to the door, and we kind of demand that he explain himself, and he tells us that the swastika is actually a Hindu symbol, and it has been for millennia. Hitler co-opted it because to him, it represented the good fortune of the Aryan race, but it's not his symbol, and it was never meant to mean that. It belongs to Hinduism and other Eastern and uh, Eastern Asian and Asian cultures. Ever since then, I've thought about this. I respect Hindus in this country who are religious and who follow their customs. Um, I respect that Hindus still hoist their symbols um, because it's theirs, you see. It means something else to them. Should Hitler be given the power to take ownership of it or to change it or to decide what it means? And that's the question, I guess. Should Hindus stop using the swastika because of Hitler? even though Hitler's aims had nothing to do with their own. Some might say yes. Some might say, look, like it or not, the Nazis perverted it, and now the symbol is tainted. And that's a perspective you might have. Yes, if you're a neo-Nazi using the swastika, you're a disgusting pig. But if you are a devout Hindu celebrating Diwali or some other uh, uh, holy Hindu day, why shouldn't you use the symbol? It's yours. It means good fortune to you. It means a good thing. And I guess there's a parallel here. We know that many Southerners, good Southerners, good, decent people, see the Confederate flag as a symbol of something good, something true, something courageous. They don't see slaves in it. Uh, They see more of the principles of Thomas Jefferson, who was a Virginian, and who I guarantee would not, in a million years, have been in favor of violently forcing Virginia to stay in the Union. And I believe if he had been around... In 1861, he would have been on the side of Virginia. And that's what the uh, Southerners see. Or, or they see, um, you know, some of these, uh, not these Southern politicians and plantation owners from the 19th cent- century, but they see men like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. These were good men, courageous men, great leaders, God-fearing. These were men who were revered and respected on both sides of the war. These were men who fought and led reluctantly. Um, Robert E. Lee was, was, the Union tried to recruit him before he ended up commanding the Army of Northern Virginia. The Union tried to recruit him. He was respected and revered, as I said, on both sides. And these were men who hated the war, but believed that their home was, before anything else, their state. It's hard for us now as people so attached to the federal government to understand how for the first 100 years of our country's existence, your country was your state, not the federal government. That's how people saw it. And I can't say that it's necessarily a bad way of looking at it. They cared deeply for their community, their home. They cared about that first. And then the union of states came second. First, it was their community and their home, their state. And then next, it was the, it was the conglomeration of other states. But that came second. To their own communities. It's hard for me to say that that's a bad way of looking at it. Can you? So these men fought on the side of their community. They thought that that's what, you know, that's what they were called to do. That's what they should be doing. 
That's why many Southerners and people who are not Southerners, um, that's why they see it this way. Uh, That's why they see the Confederate flag the way they do. But then there's the KKK and the white supremacists, the Dylan Roofs of the world. They use it for different ends. Do they now own it? Do they define it? Does Hitler own the swastika? Did he define it? That's the question. But I like to always take the side that strips the evil of its power, not the side that emboldens it. And what I'll say finally is this. Evil men do not get to define or own anything. They are manipulators and they are cowards, and that's all. But for the good and decent people, these symbols still stand for good and decent things. I believe that, and far be it for me to tell someone else what they should see in a symbol. That's my position. It's not simple. It's not a simple, you know, one or the other proposition. Um, There are obviously nuances to it because this, as I said, is a symbol. It's a complicated, deep, complex thing. But uh, that's that's the way I see it. All right. um, That's going to do it for me. I think I've pretty much covered all the grounds on on, uh, this subject. And and now I, like everyone else, will uh, move on. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you next week. Akruche Salus. Godspeed.